Join Global Genes at the 2002 Patient Advocacy Summit in San Diego, September 12th through the 14th. We'll be returning to an in-person event this year, and our theme is Rare Life Bonded Together. If you can't make the trip, the event will be available virtually as well. To register for the in-person or virtual summit, go to globalgenes.org and look under the events tab. Hope to see you there. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. James Garrity has had an up-close view of the rise of the rare disease drug industry as an entrepreneur, investor, and executive. Now he's added the additional title of author with his new book, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution. Garrity looks back through the past 40 years of his career, starting with the passage of the Orphan Drug Act in 1983. We spoke to Garrity about the catalyst that gave rise to the orphan drug industry, his concerns about the changing rare disease policy landscape, and why he believes it's essential for companies to take a patient-centric approach to drug development. James, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Danny. Congratulations on the new book, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, The Promise of Patient-Centered Drug Development. Thank you. It's been a pleasure writing it. Talk about your book, your visibility into 40 years of the orphan drug industry, and what needs to be done to ensure scientific innovation can result in new therapies that benefit patients. I'd like to start with your own entry into the world of rare diseases. You you say you stumbled into it unexpectedly. Can can you explain what happened? Sure. Uh, You know, like a lot of uh, young people early in my career, I was looking for some way to make a contribution. Uh, but, uh, you know, you start by getting trained and I was trained as a lawyer and then I joined a strategy consulting firm and they gave me great training in analysis and in thinking about value creation and company building. But I found that uh, most of the clients that I was working with were primarily interested in making money and that was intellectually interesting in some ways, but not really that satisfying or rewarding. And then I, uh, one of the clients that I began working with was a client that had a very different culture and a very different uh, set of values, quite honestly. And that was a company that was early on in the, in the orphan drug revolution, working with patients with rare genetic diseases. And I came to see the impact, the value that those drugs, those therapies could have on those patients. I came to see the commitment to science and medicine that the people working in that company, working on those drugs with the patients and the families that they were working with, and it was very powerful, and it became very uh, kind of appealing. And ultimately, I oriented my entire career toward toward working with people and and companies like that. Well, you've certainly had a long and sweeping career, much of which has been involved in rare disease as either an entrepreneur in residence with Third Rock Ventures, a CEO, a board member, or, or chairman. What is it about rare disease in particular that has attracted you to this work? You know, there's a sense of um, 
there's a sense of responsibility. My my longtime mentor in this field was Henry Tamir, who's often considered by many people kind of the father of the orphan drug revolution, who started his career at Baxter, where he was my client when I was Bain & Company, as I was describing earlier. And then Henry went on to effectively found Genzyme Corporation, which was a leader, a longtime leader in the orphan drug community. And, uh, you know, Henry had a tremendous sense of, uh, you could say, personal responsibility. And uh, what he always used to say was, when you met patients and families with a rare genetic disease and you saw, you know, the, the suffering and the challenges that they lived with, and then you met these brilliant, talented scientists and physician scientists working on innovative therapies that had tremendous promise, it, it, it needed a company. You know, drugs can only be brought through the FDA and ultimately marketed, brought to patients around the world by a company. And Henry felt a tremendous sense of responsibility that we had to do whatever we could to get those drugs from those scientists through the FDA to those patients. And that was very powerful, very moving, and that, that became really the, the motivation for the rest of my career. You talk about a number of catalysts that have enabled the emergence of an orphan drug industry. The first is the Orphan Drug Act. Can you explain how this transformed the landscape for rare disease drug development? Sure. It goes back to uh, really the way you know the pharmaceutical industry was oriented in the 1970s. And uh, in those years, the pharma industry, which had become you know, as it had passed from early founder, entrepreneur, scientists, become large companies, passed into the hands of, you know, large corporations and financially oriented managers. Uh, it had become very profit driven and it had become focused on this quest for blockbusters, billion dollar drugs that could be taken, simple drugs could be taken by a large number of people. And it had left behind its, some of its original mission around very severe, very debilitating diseases but diseases that often affected only a small number of, of people, of patients. So those diseases were, were abandoned, orphaned by the pharmaceutical industry. And it was only when a group of patients you know, got motivated, when they were upset, even angry, about the fact that pharma was not, not addressing their diseases, their children's, their family members' diseases, that they went to Congress. And after over a two-year period of really building awareness and mobilizing support, they were able to get support for the Orphan Drug Act, uh, passed exactly 40 years ago now, that provided incentives for companies to, to focus on these rare diseases. And that was enough of a catalyst. It raised awareness and it provided some financial incentives so that companies began working on those drugs, Genzyme being one of the pioneers. Those, some of those were very successful and that has transformed the industry to the point where some of these drugs for rare genetic diseases are among the most important drugs in the biopharmaceutical, biotech, and, and pharma communities today. You also talk about the AIDS epidemic. I think listeners may think of the AIDS epidemic in the context of patient advocacy and its impact there, but there was a direct impact on rare disease patients like Ryan White, the teenager who had hemophilia and contracted AIDS from contaminated factor eight. What impact did this have on the development of a, an orphan drug industry? It had a huge impact. Uh, you know, as I talk about in the book, hemophilia, uh, which is one of the most widely known of all rare genetic diseases, sometimes called the royal disease, as many people know, histories of hemophilia in the royal families and in Victoria's family and the Russian royal family. Um, Well-known disease, highly visible, and uh, one of the larger patient communities for rare genetic diseases. And in the late 1970s, you know, the hemophilia community was on a 
on a high. Things were going very well. New Therapies Baxter, the company that I was working with Henry Tamir at and other companies, had developed new forms of so-called concentrated factors that were safe, convenient, provided the best care that had ever been seen in hemophilia and life expectancies had, exp had improved, uh, quality of life had improved dramatically. But it turned out like every, you know, there's a dark side or an underside to every new technology. Those drugs, those therapies have been made available by pooling large quantities of, of human plasma. When, when people would donate their plasma, it would be collected and then these factors for treating hemophilia would be, would be, would be precipitated out of that blood, out of that plasma. And unfortunately, uh, as the AIDS epidemic you know, swept the country, it was not recognized at the time that many donors, uh, many of whom were often poor and came from underprivileged communities in which the AIDS uh, virus, the HIV virus was even more prevalent. It turned out that almost all of that blood that was being pooled had some uh, HIV contamination. And the way that contamination works is if even one donor has HIV and it's 20,000 donors are pooled to make uh, large lots for treating thousands of patients that will, they will, it will all be infected with HIV. And as a result, many hemophiliacs, many persons with hemophilia came down with HIV, many died, uh, and, and all of the advances of the, of the earlier years were reversed. Life expectancies dropped sharply. And as a result, the hemophilia community became highly activated, like the AIDS community, agitating for faster reviews of drugs by the FDA, more support for access to therapies, and both the, both, the, both the push for better therapies, now all hemophilia patients have been transferred from, transitioned from uh, uh, plasma-derived factor to recombinant or genetically engineered products that don't have that risk of viral transmission. And that, that drove much of the genetic engineering revolution that has underpinned many new uh, orphan drugs for many other rare diseases. And it also triggered a wave of patient awareness and patient activism that continues today to be an important force in, in providing support for therapies going through the FDA and regulatory authorities around the world. You, you talk about the emergence of the biotechnology industry. How did that change the way people thought about rare diseases and conceived of therapies? They were very linked. You know, the traditional pharmaceutical industry came out of a, a heritage of chemistry and most of the original pharmaceutical companies were chemical companies and they made drugs by synthesizing small chemicals. But uh, the genetic diseases, as more was being learned about genetic diseases, it was learned that they were primarily you know, genes code for proteins. And so when a genetic disease or defect occurs, it's a protein that is defective. And small molecules are not very effective at treating proteins. But it turned out that through the, the miracle of of DNA, you know, Watson and Crick discovering the double helix, and then scientists learning how to use genetic engineering to recombinate products, to make new products, to make these proteins like the factors for hemophilia, factor eight and factor nine that people with hemophilia need. Uh, those could be synthesized, those couldn't be synthesized chemically, but they could be produced uh, using this genetic engineering in a so-called bioreactor. They could be made in living biosystems. And those are the products, those were common in proteins that were needed to treat hemophilia, Gaucher disease, Fabry disease, most of the products, most of the diseases in the early phases of the orphan drug revolution. And it was only through that miracle of biotechnology that those diseases were actually able to be treated effectively. 
we've seen the, the biotechnology industry take us from these enzyme replacement therapies and protein therapeutics to an era of really genetic medicine, whether it's antisense oligonucleotides or gene therapies and, and now gene editing. Where do you see the biggest challenges in realizing the potential of these therapies? Are they scientific, business, policy? Yeah, they really are a combination of those and science and policy in particular would, are necessary to enable successful companies. Uh, the science is making tremendous progress. Uh, and as you say, the, 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 the next wave now, the next, you know, the first wave of advances was from these chemically synthesized products and plasma derived products to, to recombinant proteins, which had tremendous value and great safety, but valuable and life-changing and, 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 and wonderful as they are, they require chronic lifetime administration. They have a half-life, and most patients with diseases, those genetic diseases, need to go in to have an IV infusion to get their drugs administered every week sometimes, two weeks, at most every four weeks, for a multi-hour infusion, usually in a hospital. So that's obviously a great inconvenience and has great burdens on the healthcare system and the families as well as patients. The next generation of therapies are so-called one-time therapies, genetic therapies, where Instead of administering the protein, to take one example, as I said earlier, you know, DNA, genes code for proteins, um, instead of delivering the protein, we are now delivering the gene, the DNA, directly to the patient. And the difference there is that integrates into the patient's own DNA in such a way that it produces the patient, produces the protein for the rest of the patient's life. So the science definitely needs to be improved. Uh, we are finding new so-called vectors, new delivery vehicles to make these products safer, and that progress is happening rapidly. The policy progress is lagging, quite honestly. And a, a big challenge there is that, you know, the healthcare system, the reimbursement systems, insurance systems, haven't caught up with the fact that these one-time therapies are so valuable to patients and so valuable to, to, the, to the healthcare system. But, but, but insurers haven't learned and the healthcare systems haven't learned how to reimburse therapy. So a system today would pay a lot more for a drug that a patient had to come in and take every month for 10, 20, 30 years, the, the insurance companies would pay for that drug to be reimbursed for each one of those administrations, but they won't pay something similar or an equivalent amount for the one-time administration. So as a result, even today as we speak, a kind of a chill has set in on the world of genetic medicine. Many investors have pulled back and uh, many companies are now having to suspend or terminate work on these programs because investors today are struggling to see how the reimbursement economics can provide a sufficient return on the investment required. Your book is subtitled The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology. I've never met a company that didn't describe itself as science-driven and patient-focused. What do you think makes a drug company patient-focused and why does that matter? It matters a lot. It matters in terms of the fundamental way that companies think about going about developing drugs and think about doing it, you know, right for the long term. Yeah, you're right. Every company, every company developing drugs says it's patient centered, but you have to be, you have to get, get to know the companies to understand the difference. And, you know, every company has a culture and the culture tends to come from the people who founded the companies and where the companies came from and patients and physicians and scientists and, and even investors and employees they get to know, you can tell from the inside, there are some companies that put patients first, 
to try to do things right for the long term, to put the work in, to understanding the patient journey, the unmet need, and how to develop the therapy that will really have a significant impact. There are other companies that give some lip service to that and look to get, you know, to get a product to market quickly and cut corners, and those generally don't tend to work. So the good news is that because these therapies are so complex and they take so many people developing them, usually the only companies that survive and thrive really are the companies that are, particularly in terms of developing the drugs, which are more of the small biotech companies, are the companies that really do engage closely with patients and have that patient mission truly close to the heart of their own company mission. Is there an example from your experience that you would point to that you think demonstrates how being patient-centric paid off, how it improved the drug development process or the end product? Well, there are many companies doing that today. I think many of them would point to Genzyme, Henry Tamir, who passed away a few years ago. Uh, when Henry started at Genzyme, you know, people told him he was crazy, that nobody, uh, no investor would support companies developing drugs for these rare diseases. And indeed, it was very difficult to raise money to support Genzyme in the early years. It took many years and a lot of creative financing to have the company survive through all the difficulties and delays inherently involved in developing drugs. But Genzyme became ultimately very successful, became one of the most successful companies in biotechnology, not only in developing drugs, therapies for rare diseases, but in developing a, a whole way of relating to patients, of actually bringing patients drugs directly, not, not licensing them out to pharma companies, but being there in the market with patients so that you could understand how to improve them and how to develop next generation versions. And there are many companies today, uh, Vertex, Alnylam, Amicus, Ultragenics, who are following that tradition, and most of them credit Genzyme as being kind of the role model for the companies that they're building today. Drug development remains an expensive and risky venture. We've seen some erosion to the Orphan Drug Act. One of the things you write about is the need for further policy innovation, particularly with regards to ultra-orphan disease therapies. I'd like to walk through a few of those points and have you make the case. The first is the need for regulatory flexibility. Can you explain? Sure. You know, the FDA and the EMA, it's equivalent in Europe and it's their counterparts in Japan and, and obviously many countries, all countries around the world. They're extremely high quality organizations and I have tremendous respect for them. And most people who work in biotechnology have great appreciation and, and, and admiration for the people who work at the FDA, they're first class. Um, the FDA had to learn as orphan drugs came along how to adapt its practices. And that's part of what the Orphan Drug Act uh, was so helpful in in review times and consultation and part working in a, more of a partnership with companies because these drugs are so rare, these diseases are so rare with patients to understand how to develop a drug, how to support the successful enablement of a drug. Today, most of the 7,000 genetic diseases that are out there are actually what will be called ultra-orphan. They have many few fewer patients than the Gaucher disease, Fabry disease, Pompe disease, uh, you know, uh, hemophilia, other diseases that have the muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis, for which drugs have been successfully developed. And as a result, it's much more difficult to do trials and it's much more difficult to develop manufacturing systems and, and to validate the manufacturing processes. And the FDA, which like any large organization can become bureaucratic, you know, the people at the top of the FDA, I think they really understand and appreciate this and they try to help and they try to be supportive. But when these programs come in, you know, into what you might call the bureaucracy, the reviewing divisions. Unfortunately, 
a lot of people there, there's a kind of a classic, you know, bureaucratic mentality about this, these are the rules and these rules have to be followed. And so today there's some legislation being proposed to further adapt regulatory guidelines to ultra orphan diseases, uh, even rarer diseases. And I think the FDA itself is trying to find ways to adapt its review processes so that it maintains the same standards of, you know, quality for safety and efficacy, but, but it takes advantage of these, of these policies that have, that have been widely used that allow for an accelerated approval of a drug based on certain what you might call preliminary, so-called biomarker kinds of indications, and then continued monitoring of the drug over time to ensure that it remains safe and effective. We need to further develop the ability to do that in a systematic way to allow these other 7,000 diseases to actually have a chance of having therapies come to life. You also talk about making priority review vouchers for rare pediatric diseases permanent. These are vouchers that are awarded to companies who successfully bring a qualified rare pediatric disease therapy to market to shorten the review time for any drug. These vouchers are particularly valuable because they can be sold. What would you like to see happen? Well, those pediatric review vouchers have had tremendous impact because they do have significant value. Uh, and and I'm, I'm in companies with companies all the time in boardrooms where companies are trying to decide you know, can they continue to support investment in therapy? Companies, board members, uh, executives in publicly traded companies have fiduciary duty to their shareholders to ensure that they're investing those funds in a, in a responsible way and they can see a return on that investment. And often these ultra rare diseases, the number of patients is so small and the reimbursement issues I talked about earlier are so significant that it's very difficult to see an attractive return on investment. The ability to sell a pediatric review voucher at least allows a company to think it can recoup its expenses or most of its expenses and at least break even. And that's a valuable, that allows it then to make a valuable contribution and to develop other drugs, hopefully that can be more valuable and support the company while bringing this product to market in a way that works for patients and at least allows the company to survive. The challenge is that those vouchers are have been continually subject to a sunset provision where they expire every two to four years. Congress has extended those expiration dates on a regular basis, but as companies are sitting in a board meeting today saying, can we make this investment? They're looking at that PRV sunset provision and they're saying, well, right now, this is scheduled to expire in two years. And if we make this investment, it may take three to five years for our drug to be approved and, and there may not be a voucher available. So com some companies are making the decision not to make those investments because they can't be confident there will be a, a mechanism there that will at least allow them to offset the cost of doing that. You also talk about the need for additional incentives for ultra-rare disease therapies. How are you defining ultra-rare populations and what might these incentives look like? You know, ultra-rare populations are somewhat informally defined today, although they're becoming more, more formally defined in various countries. In the United States, as uh, many people know, the so-called orphan drug as defined in the, or orphan disease as defined in the Orphan Drug Act is a disease which afflicts fewer than 200,000 people in the United States. Uh, Ultra-orphan diseases are often looked at as diseases that have only, uh, you know, a, a, a couple of thousand patients, maybe 5,000 patients might be a common number. And as I said before, most of the 7,000 genetic diseases that still lack treatments are in that ultra-orphan category, fewer than 5,000, often fewer than 1,000. Today, because of the success of many of the of Genzyme and other companies, 
many companies would develop drugs for a disease with 200,000 or even 100,000 patients. But when there are only 1,000 patients, it's much more difficult, much more difficult to make the economics work. And so we need, we need further engagement around reimbursement mechanisms. We need other mechanisms like the kind that the Orphan Drug Act initially instituted to reduce the costs of filing with the FDA to reduce, in particular, the complexity of trials and the complexity of reviews. I think with these diseases, which may only have a few hundred patients, it's only when a set of reviews calibrated to the size of an ultra-orphan drug population are widely available that all of those diseases will have a chance of seeing therapies developed. I should note, you not only talk about the need for scientific innovation and, and regulatory innovation, but also innovation around reimbursement. Hmm. Can you explain that? Yeah, there's been a number of discussions about that. They, they haven't yet gotten much traction. But for example, take, take, a, take a disease for which today uh, a patient needs to take chronic therapy. Uh, those therapies can often cost, as many people know, for these orphan diseases, several hundred thousand dollars a year. And so over the course of a patient's living 30 to 40 to 50 years, the cost of therapy for that patient to take that drug can be 10, 15, 20, 30 million dollars over the course of a lifetime. Uh, today, a, a gene therapy, a genetic therapy that's being developed might only need to be administered once. And today, for understandable reasons, there's a kind of a sticker shock quality that you know people can't see paying more than something like $2 million for that. And that's certainly understandable. Many companies are saying, we don't want $2 million. We want to get paid on an ongoing basis, but only if our drug works. You know, insurance Insurers and healthcare systems have often said to the pharmaceutical industry, we only want to pay for performance. We only want to reimburse a drug if it's worked. And these gene therapy companies are now saying, that's what we want. We don't want to be paid a couple million dollars on, on day one. We want to deliver the therapy. Then we want to work with the health system to ensure that the therapy delivers benefit on an ongoing basis. And if it does, but only if it does, it should be reimbursed on an annual basis, the same way that these, these replacement therapies that need to be administered chronically are being reimbursed today. As you think about the next 40 years, what do you see as the potential to change what it means to be born with a rare disease? And what do you see as the biggest threat to realizing that? Well, that's, that's the book ends with a look forward, you know, the next 10 years and beyond. And uh, of course, the one thing we know is that, you know, the future is difficult to predict and it's changing rapidly. Um, there are a couple of things that uh, are possible. Uh, one is, of course, the ultimate goal of medicine is always prevention of disease. There are some mech there are some technologies emerging that offer the possibility of screening for genetic diseases and offer the possibility of allowing parents to have a pregnancy without the risk of a genetic disease. That's a complex process, but it, and it raises some ethical issues, but there are ways that that can be more fully integrated into the system. Newborn screening is a critical priority. Uh, many of these therapies, if a child is or an infant is diagnosed with a disease soon after birth, a genetic therapy can allow them to live with a full unimpaired quality of life. That same therapy, if the child is only diagnosed several years later, can have a positive impact, but usually can't reverse uh, much of the damage that was caused in the early years. So uh, allowing more diseases to be identified at newborn screening and patients to be treated you know, immediately after birth will have a huge impact for uh, patients who are still sadly born with those diseases going forward. 
The book is Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution. If you'd like to hear Jim or get a chance to meet him, he'll be featured at the Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit in San Diego, September 12th to 14th. Jim Garrity, entrepreneur, investor, executive, and author. Jim, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.